You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today, Diane shares more of her story. The family disease of addiction has traveled through her family and into her son's life. She shares the familiar story of powerlessness as a mother to change Mike's path. Let's get back to Diane. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. When you say marijuana maintenance, that's what? So that is what, and this is literally what I told him, is that so, you know, and he would draw a lot of parallels with me because um, my drinking career, we were both exactly the same. Like, you know, there are people who have a couple of drinks and they're fun loving and, and having a good time. And, and I would have a couple of drinks and then it would push me over to be this person that I'm not at all. Like I would fight almost every big guy I saw, you know, because that was where it took me. He was exactly the same way. He wasn't a fun, happy drunk. He got drunk and then wanted to, you know, try to pound everybody and didn't work out well for either one of us. So when he was, when he switched to smoking marijuana, he was mellow, you know, and he was very laid back, like really laid back, like to the point I I told him he was a bat because he would stay up all night and sleep all day. (laughs) So he, he started, you know, he started kind of, of, of that journey, but I told him, I said, it doesn't make any difference, Mike. What you did is you switch seats on the Titanic. Mm. You know, the boat is still going to go down. Cause I always used to tell, ask him, name me one successful drink drinker or drug user in our family. I'll wait. And of course he couldn't name one, but he would do the same thing for me and say, name one person that, you know, uh, you know, goes to, to jail for fighting after getting high. And, and of course he would phrase them in a way that of course that's not going to happen, but he had had a couple of arrests by then. And I told him all the time, I can't stop you from going down that road. I'll be damned if I'll sit here and watch you go. And at that point I had very, both of my brothers and with him being my only child, it, I, just, I couldn't do it after he turned um, 18. I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't watch that. So you said to him, I won't watch it, which is one of the hardest steps for a family member parent to make. What did that mean in real terms? What did you establish as a boundary? So I told him, I said, I can't live with active addiction, Mike. Somebody's addiction trashed my childhood. I didn't have a choice about that. But I have a choice about my adult life, and I can't do it. And then I said, I can't stop you from going down that road, but I will be damned if I'll sit here and watch you go. I can't do it. And then I said, if you ever you know, want help for this, because he didn't think that marijuana was a a problem or that anybody got addicted to marijuana. I said, if you ever want to get help, I'll do whatever I can 
to help you, but I can't do anything to enable this anymore. And so he was 19 years old and I had to watch my only child pack up everything and walk out the door. And when he walked out the door, then that's when I held him up to the God of my understanding again and say, please, please take care of him. And then how do you survive that? What did you do? So, so, th- so this is when this was that period where I was like, I was going to um, two meetings and then working. And that was pretty much it uh, because it's like all that I could process. Like there was just no um, socializing. There was just no energy, even for extended family. You know, I just, I couldn't do that. And so it was really kind of about surviving for me at that point. And he is smart enough to know our relationship was never like never darkened my doorway or screaming and yelling at each other ever Mm -hmm. because he's very, very respectful and always has been, especially with me. And so he was smart enough to know because he came back and forth. He went out and when I told him he had to go and, you know, of course did some more research and he got a little more beat up by it because he was not like the things that he kind of had set up for himself, like his own goals, he wasn't able to achieve them. And so he would come back and he was a little bit more beat up. I want help. I want to get better. And then when I knew that he was using again, I said, I can't live with active addiction. Like, I can't do it. And then he would leave again. But our relationship was good. Like we saw each other all of the time in and out of that uh, kind of two-year period that he was uh, moving in and out. So it sounds like you did what I teach, you teach, which was love your son, but hold a strong boundary against his disease. Because I used to say, love the child hate the behavior, love (laughs) the child, hate the behavior. And when he was standing there and we were kind of like moving through something of his, I would just repeat that over and over. And then it got to the point where I would start it. He would say, I know mom, love the child, hate the behavior. So he got it. So has Mike found his way into recovery? Not at that point from he has hadn't drank since he turned 20. And so that was for him. That's what caused the problem. I mean, we see that all the time, right? This, this kicked my butt. So I'm just going to use that because, you know, that's different. And so he was just one of those, you know, people who kind of fell into that same thing. And didn't have consequences that were serious, but eventually something happened for him that helped him turn the corner. Yeah. And that was when he was 24 years old. He was um, arrested. So he was in jail and was facing serious charges. He was looking at prison. The DA said, you know, three to five years in prison is that's what's going to happen. And and so when that happened, right at the time that he got arrested, his wife found out she was pregnant with their first child. And for him, it was just like, and he had been studying language and culture through this time period, um, not thinking it was his life's work because he was going to be a lawyer. Any kind of denial that he had was gone because for the first time I saw him cry and say, what did I do to my community? Like, (laughs) 
contributed to, you know, uh, um, devastating people that had lifetimes of devastation. And he still, to this day, struggles a little bit with that guilt about what he did to his community. So, and it was then that he just said, that's it, I'm done. And and he hasn't picked up anything since that. And that was in, um, gosh, which is it? September of 2003? I think it was 2003. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So what I hear in the emotion of that is not only the impact to an individual, a partner, a potential child, at that stage, a mother, there's a responsibility towards the community of having gone against values, done damage, potentially fueled someone else's illness that was eating at him. Oh, yeah. And it's, I, I don't know that he really felt any of that or really saw it until he wasn't using when he was in jail and, and he was, you know, he was cleaning up and, and he spent nine months in jail going through this, uh, uh, court, this court process. And, uh, and then I think that with uh, all of that, you know, awareness and just like, you know, he, so he's, he's like me, spends a lot of time, you know, kind of thinking and, and pondering and then seeing, you know, Kristen pregnant and he, there's nothing he can do. There's also something pretty incredible within Mike to have that commitment to the community at large once he realized what had happened. And again, I know the story, so I'm kind of going ahead, but he has now in unbelievable fashion and form and given back. You know, talk about amends and restitution we make in recovery. So why don't you share with the audience, with everybody listening, that next piece, you know? I, I hear that he hit that bottom. That was a big bottom, right? That awakening once sober, which who hasn't experienced that on some level when you come to and you're no longer mood altered and you see the pain in people's eyes you love and you start seeing the ramifications. His were on a bigger scope because of his connection to your community. What was the next chapter? So he, um, you know, I, I, I mean, literally he had one foot in prison and the other on a banana peel. He told me, he said, I don't want you to come to court. I don't want you there. I did this. I'm responsible for it. I don't want you there except for the day that I'm sentenced. So he was facing three to five years in prison and then two or three years of extended supervision. And that's what the DA presented because when we went, we, I went to his sentencing, two of my sisters were there. Um, a couple of my uh, uncles who are older um, were there. And he just kind of wanted that show that he's got support. And um, so that's what the DA recommended. And when the judge sentenced him for the first time in my life, because I've been to court with, I don't hundreds of clients over the years that I've been doing this, um, been in court hearings with 
with them. And for the first time in my life, the judge sentenced under what the DA recommended. I've always seen a judge sentence what the DA recommends or even above what the DA recommends. And he sentenced him under. And he said, I'm not sending you to prison, but you are going to jail. And he had, you know, this jail time. And then he had the uh, three years of ex- of extended supervision. And when he was done with that, he had uh, finished his associate's degree at the tribal college, transferred to a state college, and uh, was going to uh, got his undergrad and then was going to apply for law school. But when he got his undergrad, he really kind of saw his journey going somewhere. And again, it's, that is tied back to helping his community and kind of doing that, that paying back. And so in, in nine years after he finished uh, his legal obligations, he uh, got his PhD in linguistics. And that is his life work is um, Ojibwe language revitalization. And to someone who doesn't know what that means, can you put words to how vital and what that means? So when he was, uh, when he graduated with his undergrad degree, uh, he, part of, he was a, his undergrad degree is in sociology. And one of his classes uh, um, he did this kind of project outside of our grocery store on the reservation. And he just would like greet people in the Ojibwe language, just very kind of like um, not like not real technical kind of stuff. Just like, how are you doing today? How's everything going for you? And, and he was astounded at how many people I can't understand you. I don't know what you just said. And, and then he started to take a look at the speakers that we had on our reservation. And he realized that we had 10 firstborn speakers left on our reservation. And firstborn speakers, I mean, people who were born speaking the Ojibwe language and English was their second language. Okay. And he knew that when those 10 people were gone, our language was done, that they were gone. And so that really shifted his focus when he started working on his uh, master's degree was to bring back that the language and save it literally. I mean, that's the, that group of folks that he's kind of tied into now, that's what we call them. All those people who across this country are language warriors. And it's not just in Ojibwe country, it's all across indigenous tribes where there's that pocket of second language learners who are saving the language. So in doing that uh, within your tribe, there's an actual educational component of the school, mm-hmm. correct? Yep, yep. So they founded, and they uh, when they started to take a look at doing immersion education, they they kind of piloted, but they got all of their information from Hawaiians, the native Hawaiians who were at risk of losing their language. So with the the Ojibwe language, they started wadukadating, which means we help each other. And they started an immersion school where the kids don't speak English at all. So, you know, we have 70 to 80 little little language speakers. That's wonderful. From pre-K to eighth grade now. 
So a very proud mom. Also, I'm sure humbled by witnessing your son's journey, right? Mm-hmm. I imagine in that courtroom where he could have been sentenced to as bad as it could have been with your knowledge of what that looks like, mm-hmm. must have been a very, very difficult day for you until you heard the outcome. Mm-hmm. It was. I mean, people, there's no rehabilitation in prison. That is such a misnomer to even have rehabilitation in prison in the same paragraph, much less the same sentence. You know, like any other parent, just that loss of dreams and like, this is not the way, this is not where I saw him going. This is not the way um, I saw his life moving to. So it was incredibly scary. Mike is a miracle of recovery, as is every person who survives this chronic, progressive, and potentially fatal disease. Diane really demonstrates the pain and possibility of loving your addicted person while setting boundaries against their disease. Come back next week to hear more of Diane's story. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.